This is the final word, story time, the speed round version Mark 2, where we are going to get through not every other revisit, but a lot of the revisits, most of them, and then we'll be back to normal service resuming as of the following week. We didn't quite get to finish our show last week because Adam got called in as an emergency commentator for an IPL (laughs) match um, for for TMS a couple of booths down the hallway. Um, So yeah, that that was an interesting end to our show. It ended up being quite a fun afternoon. Now, look, I think I can confide in our final word listeners that I don't watch an awful lot of the Indian Premier League. I have nothing against it. It's just one of those things I don't have a huge amount of time to engage in. You know, it's usually played in the afternoon, UK time. I'm working usually on the podcast or another broadcast or whatever it is. So I know it's happening. When Maxie's batting, I get text to tell me Maxie's batting. I'll flick it on sometimes, often not. But that's okay. It's It doesn't need to be for everyone at all times. And I would acknowledge that I hadn't watched a single ball of the IPL this season until the ball where I was commentating. So as soon as we hit stop on the tape, I ran in three doors down the BBC TMS coverage of the IPLs done at the Oval where I was recording story time from. Uh, pulled up a seat next to Mark Church, replacing Daniel Norcross, and away we went. And we ended up getting a last ball thriller too with Donny. The commentary is quite funny. I listened back to some of it, and Daniel and I, are, it's effectively a, a final word episode with a, an IPL game going on. We're having a lot of fun. And I think that was in keeping with the vibe of, you know, of, of the IPL that, y- of course, you, you're paying attention to the detail, but a lot of it is entertainment. And uh, yeah, Donny managed to get the Chennai Super Kings over the line, needing 16 off the last four balls and predictably hit a six from the final ball to win the game or whatever it was. And, and everyone was very happy and everyone had a nice time and I had a nice time. <laughs> so yes, a cameo performance and happy to step in for Ravi Bapara anytime, anywhere. <laughs> Ravi, careless whisper, Bapara. Uh, another cricketer with a song of his own is Warwick Armstrong. Oh, yes. Uh, who we're going to be, well, finding a way that we can remix the upcoming smash hit Warwick Armstrong style. Um, Glenn Finkeld has been looking into how to how to edit the video clip to put Warwick Armstrong's head in it. Um, but but I, I think video editing is probably not Glenn's forte, but there may be some people out there who, who, who are better able, better equipped to handle this challenge. Well, he's found an app, hasn't he, or, or, or a website generator. But the problem is in order to get Warwick Armstrong style 10 years on as a tribute to the great Korean K-popper Psy, um, a lot of assumptions that play there. Uh, I'm pretty sure he, his work was in the K-pop genre. Anyway, whatever. It was 2012, it was a time. It was a feel. It was energy. But yeah. it's going to cost Glenn 24 USD, 24 United States dollars, if he was to put Warwick Armstrong <laughs> in the generator. And my suspicion is, I haven't looked at this thread for a couple of days on, on Discord, but I'm tipping he's probably raised the funds for it. I don't think we're far away from seeing Warwick Armstrong as Psy in Warwick Armstrong style. 10 years on, it, who knows? It might have 40 million hits on YouTube as well. I think that there are ways that it can be done uh, without having to pay somebody 24 US dollars on a dodgy website, I reckon. But uh, yeah, it was, it, was one of the, it was one of the first few videos to hit a billion views on YouTube right. when that happened. Got a little bit of interesting correspondence to work through, which yep. I didn't get to the last few weeks because we were flat out with numbers. But bugger it, we're going to do it today. Uh, Dara O'Donovan wrote some weeks ago when it was coming up to final season in the Melbourne sub-district competition and said, 
I've had an exciting season umpiring some awesome cricket, including players like Tilak Dilshan, Michael Beer and Jeevan Mendes, who are all playing their trade in suburban southeast Melbourne cricket these days. Well, you can throw into the pot sort of upcoming uh, Fidel Edwards, apparently Chris Gale's coming for a couple of T20s, Lahiru Tiramana. So Paul Amy, who writes a lot on, on suburban sport, wrote, a piece about Endeavour Hills, your old club, mm. Adam, and their their um their sort of Harlem Globetrotters approach to it, attracting the world's best talent. Apparently, what's happened is they've teamed up with some events management mm. crew who are basically going to try to turn a buck out of these games by getting the big names involved. And so the events company pays the players effectively, but the um the the local comp says that's fine. The players still have to uh, match up with the requirements of only being able to have a certain number of former internationals or recent internationals because players are worth a certain number of points depending how recently they've played whichever levels of cricket. But, uh, look, it's, it's all action at Endeavour Hills. Yeah, so there is a point system to, to ensure that you can't turn out, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters in, in the subbies. You know, my instinct was to feel uncomfortable about this, right? Like, you know, I, I've, I've talked a lot in the past uh, about how I wish suburban cricket didn't pay anyone apart from the coach or maybe the captain and the coach. And it does seem to cut across that when all those players you mentioned are playing for Endeavour Hills next year. Fidel Edwards, Chris Gale, uh, Lahuru Tiramane, uh, Tilakarat Adilshan, Saranga Lakmal as well, Um, not Michael Beer, and not Jeeva Mendes either. But the majority of them are going to play for my club or my old club. But as it was explained to me by a former president, someone I have an enormous amount of time for and known since I was a little kid, there is a method in this. There's what you're describing there of getting getting players in via this um, events company, but also that it is turbocharging junior participation. And if a club like Endeavour Hills, it was always about that. Like when I grew up, we had more junior teams than any club in Melbourne, I think maybe in Victoria. That was partly a demographic story, but Endeavour Hills isn't a young area anymore, not compared to how it was in the 90s. So if you want to have a thriving junior section, you do need to find new ways to get kids involved. And if this achieves that, then I I think I'm at peace with it. But I also know that there is another side of the story about giving the impression of Endeavour Hills trying to buy a premiership. I get where that fits in. I get that critique, but it does feel as though that the ends will justify the means here in terms of the kids who hopefully will come through and, and players like Tilakrat Nadilshan and Lahara Tiramane who have both set up shop in South East Melbourne. Like they're both going to be living in the area. So it's not as though they're kind of FIFO players. They're they're hopefully in it for the long haul. <laughs> FIFO farm. Uh, this message came through from Robert Kingston and from Toby Guyatt, or they both pointed us towards this match that, again, was some weeks ago. A recent preliminary quarterfinal in the Ranji Trophy between Jharkhand and Nagaland, uh, which they, they each thought hit some pretty final word areas. Uh, so here's how the message reads. There's been a lot of talk recently about whether Australia was too conservative in refusing the follow-on at Karachi, <laughs> but Jharkhand must really have been given the frights by Kolkata 2001. <laughs> Deeming a first innings lead of 591 insufficient, they erred on the side of caution and put on a further 417 for six, ending the game with a lead of 1,008 runs. I thought I would share that in case Jarkan's joyless refusal to make a game of it made you both laugh as much as it did me. And I can see that it is making you laugh. I jumped ahead in the page here and saw they had a lead of 1,008. That's beautiful stuff, isn't it? I wonder whether a team has ever led in first-class cricket before by more than a 1,000. But if they have, let us know. I'm sure that's something that Samo can look up in his database and those who have access to it. Well, if the if the 
three, was it, that oh, yeah, Victoria right. made yeah. in the was the first innings. innings. I don't well, think it was. I think they bowled out Tassie. I think okay. they bowled out Tassie then made their 11th. Well, there was two innings, weren't there, that went beyond 1,000. Yeah. One was against New South Wales. But I have a feeling mm-hmm. on both occasions they were batting second. But anyway, we can look that up. Yep, yep. So, um, you, you know, nonetheless, so that was a quarterfinal where I think it was by ladder position or whatever it was, uh, Jarkand only had to draw and so they just decided not to bowl you, again. You, you do see that. You, you do see that in club. We were talking about recreational suburban cricket a moment ago. You do see that when they take compulsory closure away in a final and a team mm-hmm. will bat, uh, you know, so often um, suburban grand finals are played over three days. Used to be Labor Day weekend, I reckon, going back a long time. Maybe they still do it now. But so you don't have to, have your innings closed after 80 overs or 90 overs. You can bat into day two. And I have seen grand finals where there are teams still batting on day three because the draw's good enough and they're fucking <laughs> driving their noses into the ground, the opposition, and um, and no one's happy at that. But, you know, I suppose you earn the right to do that if you're top of the table. Well, if it's a quarterfinal, you want to save your bowlers for the semifinal, True. I suppose. Uh, Dane Hanstead, regional Victorian correspondent and baked goods correspondent, uh, is also a correspondent on the use of subfielders by the Australian cricket team. We were talking about this a while ago, trying to remember who had done what as subfielders. Dane says the redheaded one you were thinking of was Chris Saberg from Queensland, who caught Kevin Peterson at fine leg in 2013 at the Gabba. That's true. I was. I was thinking of Jason Floros, but that's only because he was also a raging redhead, not because he was ever a subfielder. But my my brain was just like the only redheaded cricketer I could think of at that time was was Jason Floros. Uh, he said Manus took a catch at short leg in the Gabba Test against India in 2014, and the subfielder who caught Ross Taylor in Perth was John O'Wells, ah, who yes. has been consistent in the Big Bash the last few years. That's it. Thank you, Dane. And John O'Wells, I think from memory, comes from Canberra originally, doesn't he? He's had a good career yes. um, playing uh, with the Strikers. Uh, Jeremy Burke uh, has dropped us a line as well here, Jeff, saying that he caught up with Stories Home 82 while washing his car and wished to extend our knowledge on John Benno, a story uh, that I was telling. Uh, I guess it would have been a couple of months ago now. John Benno, who made a century and only played one test match after that, was dropped from the Australian team uh, immediately because they were trying to find room for, I think, possibly Doug Walters. Anyway, that century was reached with a six over the sight screen to take him from 94 to 100. And when you consider that the sight screen was further away in those days, that is quite a hit. Benno hit the ball bloody hard. I was at a Mr. Sheffield Shield match at the SCG when Victoria <laughs> lost not only one of the side, but also the 12th two through breaking fingers trying to stop his drives. New South Wales sent out their 12th man to field for Victoria, Ross Collins from memory, who dropped his captain, hmm, on 98, allowing him to reach a century. <laughs> it was a hard, low catch to cover. I worked with Benno on the sun in the 70s. Fabulous man and a superb rider. And you never even mentioned the Adidas Boots Affair. Look that one up. Yes, so apparently there was a point in time where uh, Adidas invented some shoes that were specifically for grass sports that didn't have spikes, that had like ridges and stuff to give you grip on grass. And the people running cricket New South Wales said that that's not a cricket shoe and that they were 
banned and you couldn't wear them. And John Benno said, screw you, and kept wearing them um, <laughs> and got banned for two matches um, in in the first-class competition and eventually had the ban rescinded somehow. But, um, oh, wow. you know, had a, had a brawl with cricket authorities over the footwear. So that was, you know, before the days of – before the days when they had to use tape to cover up, like, the name of the sponsor in the lifts at the Southampton ground when it was part of the, the ICC World Cup and all that kind of stuff before mm. they were running out to tape over uh, the, the things on your shoes. They were telling you which shoes you could wear. All right, Jeff, uh, with that correspondence uh, all dealt with, and thank you one and all, time for us to play some... Mm-hmm. Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge uh, or the revisits of Nerd Pledge. All right, Nerd Pledge is a game that we accidentally invented on the final word, or Philip Ming did, to be more precise, credit where it is due. The show is funded by people who send in contributions on Patreon, but they don't send in a normal number. They send in a very specific number down to the cent because it relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what it means. We have a go at these on the show. Sometimes we don't get them right. And then we come back and have another look and uh, we have a long list of those and we're going to get through a stack of them today. Sam Ashworth is first cab off the revisits rank. Uh, £1.76 was his number. We were guessing something to do with uh, Michael Slater's 176 against England or uh, Asanka Kurasina's average against Australia in the series of 1989. <laughs> uh, Sam says, instead, my number referred to a couple of days when my friends and I had a blast. Yes, look, I'm pretty sure this has to relate uh, to Lancashire to be in keeping with Sam's pledges in the past. So, therefore, I'm going to wear Lancashire knocked off Yorkshire by a run in that competition in the T20 Blast, per his clue. Uh, Wild scenes at a packed Old Trafford, if I recall correctly. It was a, a classic summer thriller on a Friday night there that great ground in Manchester. And also when Liam Livingston really made sort of a, a timely push for England, it was on Sky, it was a Roses game. I think we're back to 2018 for this, if memory serves me correctly. He made 79 from 37 balls in innings that included six sixes. So, yes, he, he, he outshone Butler, which didn't hurt the situation. And what was noteworthy was that due to the rain uh, that night, only 14 overs per team. So 176 for two was a pretty bloody decent clip. I mean, to give some sense of it, Adil Rashid had 44 runs taken from his three overs and it was pretty much a test attack that Yorkshire were fielding that night. But they did give it a red hot go. Joe Root uh, got 51, not out from 22 balls and Adam Lyth was there with him for most of the chase, making 60 from 26. But um, yes, at the very end, Kane Williamson needed a six from the final ball. He hit a four instead, which meant that Lancashire won by a run uh, with their tally of 176, which is what I think Sam Ashworth is pointing to when he and his friends had a blast. Very good. Uh, very well picked up. Good cluage from Sam. Now we've got the 227 from Sheetal Potdar. I talked about Vinod Kambli and his highest score, but in between having finished the research and recording the show, I realised this wasn't right because there was a, a clue that I hadn't taken into account. So Sheetal says, yes, that it was off target, but I didn't mind listening about Vinod Kambli. I had no idea he played so few tests for India. Uh, to nudge towards my original number, I was hoping that it would come up sometime during the English summer as it relates to the previous English summer. Okay, so 
India and England, I'm thinking, from the previous summer, mm. Adam. In- England did win by 227 in Chennai last year, but that wasn't in the English summer. That was on the tour of India because that's where Chennai is, funnily enough. It's sort of set up the story that, that, that followed after that, but, but that won't be it. Uh, Sam Curran took two for 27 near the end of the game when India got knocked over at Trent Bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jasper Boomer took two for 27 in the last innings of the series when he got Pope and Bairstow mm. at an important point of the of the run chase. So, you know, possible. But I think neither of those would be things that would come up in the coming English summer. You know, I don't think they're, they're significant enough. So what would come up? What would we talk about on the final word? We spent a lot of time last summer talking about Chiteshwar Pajara. Uh, and defending him against angry Indian cricket fans who wanted him to be got rid of. Well, he has now been got rid of, and he could yet make a case for a recall. But last summer, in the four tests that were played, he made 227 runs. Average 32, which, you know, might not look great, but numbers don't tell the whole story because he made two vital half centuries. He made one of them in each of the two tests that India won. So that's making runs when it matters. Ended up fourth on the runs list all up, faced 614 balls across the series. And speaking of the number of deliveries that somebody faced, if we can loop back to 227, Adam Sibley got dropped after two test matches, still faced 251 balls while making 57 runs, which gives him a series strike rate of 22.7. Options galore. I reckon it still could yet be Boomer as well at the Oval, which was the sort of series-defining spell, even if it only was a spell of um, 2 for 27. But thank you, Chital, for coming back to us on 227. Next up, Jeff, is a revisit for Tim O'Meara. We said, or I said, when trying to work out the childhood crush of his wife, that it must be David Hooks because he had a test bowling average of 41, having taken one for 41 the only time he picked up a wicket. I think that was at Adelaide Oval in his penultimate test match when India had made about a 1,000, but I was wrong. Yes, so Timothy O'Meara says, look, loved where you went with it. It is close, the number matches up, but Mrs O did not have a childhood crush on Hooksy, but on a different Australian test player, who played at that time and almost matched Charles Bannerman. Yes, and the most pertinent part of the clue is Australian in inverted commas in air quotes, if you like. So that took me, before too long, uh, to Kepler Vessels, who had a test batting average of 41-0-0. I'm surprised I didn't throw him into the mixer the first time around. And... Yeah, it, it makes sense, and what he's referring to with Bannerman is that he got a century on Test Taboo, made 162 against England in 1982. Had some real high points early on. I mean, he averaged 56 against the Windies in 1984, including a big century at Sydney to finish that series. He averaged 43 in 24 Test matches for Australia across that initial stretch as an international cricketer, which took him through until the end of the 1985 Ashes. He was never... Hugely popular due to the baggage that he had being a South African, but he was clearly popular with Mrs. O'Meara being her childhood crush. It's worth noting that that Kepler was fairly transient from an early age. I mean, he was playing first-class cricket at 16 at home, and he was playing for Sussex by the time he was 18. Then he got picked up by World Series cricket. Interestingly, he played for Australia against the rest of the world and the World Eleven teams in World Series cricket. I mean, he didn't play for them. Like, all of the other South Africans were playing 
against Australia, but he was already mm. aligned that way. Uh, the high watermark for him as a World Series cricketer was a century against the West Indies in a super test and another uh, in a in a one day. So once reunification happened, he was pretty much all set. So what he did was he, he went to Queensland and, and stuck around there and, and did his qualification years from 1979 to 1982 to formally be able to play for the proper test team. And then he became, yes, the first South African to play for Australia. And um, we're making his bow uh, in 1982 the 13th Australian man to make a century on test debut he averaged 48 in that winning Ashes series so immediately made an impact he was pretty unlucky to lose his spot in 1985 as well Jeff I mean I know they lose the series to England but 368 runs at 33 is is, is, sort of hardly hardly a disgraceful return for an opening batter in English conditions but yeah he, he wasn't helped by the fact that there was a perception that on the 85 England trip that he was effectively whipping for the Rebel Tour that obviously took place in 85-86 and then again in 86-87. That wasn't strictly the case, but there was this sort of perception that he was a, a rat in the ranks, as it were, and and left out shortly thereafter. He got back to play one more test match the following summer, and that's where Richard Hadley went bananas and took his nine for that Kepler made 70 down the other end while everyone else fell around him. But after that test match, he pulled the pin from Australian cricket altogether. He said he was completely disillusioned by the experience. Um, he still stuck with Queensland for a couple of years, but didn't want to play for Australia. He actually led uh, Queensland to the 1986 Sheffield Shield final when AB wasn't available and they came perilously close to winning the trophy for the first time, but didn't quite get there in a in a tense draw. A couple of years later, he went back to South Africa, captain to Eastern Province. He had a young Alan Donald um, leading his attack. And in his strange return to play for Australia again, but this time for the Rebel Australians in South Africa on the second tour in 86-87, and in the fourth and final unofficial test of that stretch, he made twin tons. So like, even though he'd left Australia, gone back to play domestic cricket, he was still making himself available to play for the Australian Rebels under, under Kim Hughes. But by 1989, when the England Rebels came for a second time, he was playing for South Africa. So kind of all over the shot, really. And when their readmission came uh, in 1991 at age 34, he got his opportunity for a second career as a test cricketer, as South Africa's inaugural captain from the modern era. And uh, yes, he returned to Australia both for the 1992 World Cup and then the 1993-94 uh, test series. He was part of that win at Sydney, albeit off the ground because he uh, had broken a finger, if I recall correctly. And Hansi Cronier was uh, deputising when they bowled out Australia for 100-odd to win that famous test at Sydney. And then he stuck through until Australia made their return visit in early 1994. And maybe appropriately so, uh, his final test match, his final day as an international cricketer, was Alan Border's final day as well, given how much cricket they played together in the early 80s. Uh, they both signed off uh, as uh, captaining the respective teams. And yes, that's where Alan Border stubbornly batted all day to deny South Africa a victory uh, to end that series. But yes, Kepler Vessels, it must be for his overall test batting average of 41. Well, clearly uh, the childhood version of Mrs O did not have an appreciation of uh, geopolitics and the ethics of sporting competitions. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it is uh, interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, you, know, you think about Kepler Vessels and you <laughs> you think of him as being like, he gets he's a bit of a villain, isn't he? Like you think of him as a bit of a villain. But... What's probably lost in all of that is that I know he goes on to play in those Rebel Tours, but it's not as though... I mean, that's what that's not what he was trying to do. Like, the, the very fact that he went to Sussex at age 18 to become a county pro and then came to play for Queensland, did his three years of qualification. When he could have been back in South Africa through that stretch of time, 
he was living as an Australian to get a chance to play. I mean, it's, it's I just I don't think it's as clear cut as as Kepler Vessels was a villain in all of this. I think he just wanted to play international cricket and gave himself the best opportunity to do so. And that meant leaving his, his home country. And he was probably a bit unlucky to be to be stitched up as the whip for the Rebel Tourist when he wasn't even on that first tour. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a peculiar one with, I mean, the number of teams he turned out for in the end and mm. playing, mm. playing against... Rebel against South Africa on Rebel Tours and for South Africa on Rebel yeah. Tours and it seems uh, very uh, inconsistent. <laughs> just, uh, it seems like he'd turn out for any team that would give him an offer if he felt like it. So you could say there's not a lot of principle involved in the decision-making there, I suppose, but uh, it might be interesting to hear his side of it. Keelan O'Reilly is our next revisit. 3.46. Now, you said Mick Lewis bowling three overs and going for none for 46 of them to finish his WA career, a career I didn't even remember he had. Well, nor did I. Uh, Daniel was gutted when I told him uh, that Keelan's number wasn't Mad Mix, none for 46. So when he played like one season in the inaugural Big Bash League before it was called the BBL, it was just whatever it was. Big Bash Australia, wasn't it? Something like that. But yeah, they weren't the numbers that, that Keelan was referring to. The clue reads, or the new clue reads, I wonder if Mick Lewis could make for a better yarn. You are right in that this is indeed bowling figures and the figures of an Australian. Just as Tim Minchin might have said, never again, mate, to me after being dismissed off a full bunger from yours truly on Sunday gone. So too did a batter utter the line to this bowler. Jeff. Yes, 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 indeed. Uh, Brad Hogg bowling to Sachin Tendulkar in a one-day game in 2007, I think it was. Uh, Australia defending 290. Hogg spins one back, as you would if you're a left-arm wrist spinner, to the right-hander and knocks over the (laughs) 49-year-old Sachin Ramesh Tendulkar. Adds a couple more from the tail, ends up with figures for the match of three for 46 in a comfortable win. Uh, Afterwards, according to Brad Hogg, he took the match ball to Sachin and asked him to sign it as a memento. And according to Brad Hogg, Sachin signed it with the inscription, never again, mate. Now, I say according to Brad Hogg because Brad Hogg does like to tell stories and never again, mate. I mean, it doesn't necessarily sound like what I think Sachin Tendulkar would write on a ball. He'd probably give you the address of a wellness website that's sponsoring him or something like that. But um, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily seem like his phrasing, but allegedly some version of that was written. And indeed, it was true in that uh, Brad Hogg never again dismissed Tendulkar in any form of international cricket. Um, but on that night, he did make three for 46, and I believe that is what Keelan's referring to. Very nice. I'm sure that's right, uh, Keelan, even if it makes uh, Daniel unhappy. Uh, Next up here was 270 from Dan O'Connell, not the pub. We, I say here, we said Daniel just guessed some stuff for for 270, uh, and uh, it wasn't the stuff that Daniel O'Connell wanted us to talk about. Yeah, and and can I say for for the Dan O'Connell pub it's it's still empty uh all the outsides all being graffitied whoever bought it up they the the Fitzroy Community School I think it was they've done nothing with it it's just sitting there just sitting there a hollow shell that could be a functioning pub 
it's a real shameful exercise. I think it's um, they, they've turned it into uh, is it overseas learning or something. Like, Rachel and I walked past it when we were in Melbourne this year. They're doing some international well, schooling yet. or something like that in there. But yeah, there's no. nothing. There's nothing happening in it at all. But it's all closed up and, and tagged up and graphed up and, and doing nothing, going nowhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the original clue from Daniel O'Connell was that he's reminded of his pledge every time we announce a dusty old bastard, but not because this player is a dusty old bastard. Uh, and the dusty old bastard, of course, gets announced by us playing the song the one and only by Chesney Hawks. Yeah, uh, and this was solved by Rory Seymour, so we'll give him credit here. Uh, I think this was on Discord. He was uh, linking us up to county cricketer Chesney Hughes, uh, too recent to be a dusty old bastard, but someone who would come to mind when hearing Chesney Hawks. Uh, the Chesney of Hughes variety had a top score in first-class cricket of 270, spot on. Uh, thank you, Rory Seymour. As for Chesney Hawks, if you're wondering, he's already turned 50, uh, and there was a bit in the newspaper uh, the other week that we were linked to saying that Chesney Hawks has been signed up to appear in one episode of Hollyoaks, the long-running soap over here, and in the program he will be playing the one and only as a 50-year-old. So he's still you can you still see the occasional Chesney Hawks reference, and uh, I'm not sure. No, I don't think we have a dusty old bastard on the list today, but we'll have another one back next week when we start digging into some new numbers. Well, they did a profile with him in The Guardian a few weeks ago um, in which he discussed the mixed uh, blessing of having recorded that song as a very as a very young man. Um, I, I did some work a few years ago on a, a magazine with Angie Hart from Frente who oh, yeah. had the song Accidentally, Kelly Street, and she... She said uh, she she teaches singing these days, and she said, I, "I say to my students, be very careful what you write when you are young, because <laughs> you just may end up singing it for the rest of your life." <laughs> well, it is it is a thing, isn't it? When you're in uh, when you're in Hobart, there's that that Kelly Street at the back of Salamanca, which I'm pretty sure that's what the song is named after, I recall correctly. So. Oh, well, Frente. They also did a great cover of um, Bizarre Love Triangle, didn't they? They did. Beautiful yep. cover. Uh, right, Daniel O'Connell, thank you again. Uh, Tim Manning, next up, 3.05. Uh, we said uh, Pankaj Dumani for Jammu versus Kashmir and other various 3.05s. And sure enough, that wasn't right either. Uh, there's a clue here from Tim. Uh, Pankaj Darmani fan, Ranji Trophy addict, and England COVID marshal Tim Manning here. I had a great that laugh. That was all Barat, I should clarify, who decided that Tim Manning was all of these things, and I'm glad that Tim's embraced that. <laughs> I had a great laugh listening to the latest story time. Your answers are much more entertaining than my actual guess, but here's the original clue, a reminder. I almost left on this particular day. I'm very glad I didn't. Almost left early, uh, Daryl Collins style. Yes. Daryl Collins style. <laughs> <laughs> no one getting the ideas there. <laughs> but in the end, did not. Um, yeah, we'll see. Warwick Armstrong's left us, but Daryl's still alive. We could get him to do a live shoot. I'm just God. saying. It'd be, be easier. Don't. Okay. So, so 3.05 um, uh, with a couple of suggestions from listeners as well. We've finally, I'm pretty sure I've worked this out. I haven't heard from Tim, but... Three zero five is three wickets for zero runs in five balls from Michael Clark at the end yes. of the Sydney Test in two thousand and eight. Uh, a day when you would be very glad you did not leave early when it looked like India would draw the Test, collapse in the last hour, and then coming into the second last over of the day, I think it was, yep. with Clark coming on to bowl his left arm orthodox and uh, picking up Harbhajan Singh with. 
one that really bounced and took the shoulder of the bat, and then R.P. Singh and Ishant Sharma, the last to go to win that spiteful test match. That is the 305 for COVID Marshal Tim Manning. Very good. I remember I was playing a game of uh, five-a-side futsal uh, in Pitt Lane at Albert Park on that evening. Uh, would have been It would have been early 08, wasn't it? Because that was an 07 08 series. So it must have been just before I'd moved to Canberra. Like I would have been moving up there full-time within within days of that. and uh, Or maybe even maybe even the next week. Anyway, the... Um, uh, but yeah, the test coming to an end and, and coming off after the twenty minutes and, and getting and being told that Australia had won the test match and all of us were in disbelief and more so when told it was Michael Clark who did it and it was all a great laugh considering what we'd learnt through the course of that week and there was a lot going on. Uh, yes, and a test match that that ended up uh, having well a, a fabulous finish, but also uh, led towards uh, a lot of consternation between uh, the BCCI and Cricket Australia, which. Dan Bredig does a great job in documenting in uh, his first book, Whitewash to Whitewash. Next up, Richard L, 341. Now, this one was complicated. Richard said it was the combined strike rates of two legends of the game in a match in the United States of America. I found the combined strike rates of Sachin Tendulkar and Surav Ganguly in an all-star series match in LA, but it was 342. And I said, well, maybe he'd got the number wrong. Richard replied to say, I did get the number wrong, but not in the way that you suggested. This was real cricket on a real pitch, later than the Dodger Stadium match, although that would have been an interesting chance to go without the hassle of Dodger fans and Dodger traffic. Yeah, I hate those LA Dodgers and their fans and traffic. He says, I misadded the combined strike rates. It was actually 441, not 341, plus a bit which you would round up. He says, my mum was born in 1928 and we were in town for what we referred to as her piano keys birthday. Yeah, which is 88 keys on the piano, 88th birthday. We got there eventually. We realised it had to be 2016. Where I got confused was that Richard at one point described this as red ball cricket. So I was nowhere near this initially. I was looking through when Bangladesh had toured in 2017 or, or something like that. I ended up jumping straight through to that bonkers T20 played in 2016 between the West Indies and India because it included one of the big three, which was which part of the clue from Rick. But yeah, despite the fact that it was 245 for six against 244 for four, with nine strike rates above 140 in that wild match, no two of them added up to 441. And believe me, I tried. Um, Johnson Charles, <laughs> 79 from 33. He was at 239.4. Evan Lewis was 100 off 49, 204.1. They reached 443.5 between them, which was the closest. And from there, I, I handed it over to you. Yes. And so eventually, I found out that it was something else in 2016. Uh, he said it was two all time greats. 2016 at Lauder Hill in Florida. The Caribbean Premier League came to town. The St. Lucia Zooks were playing in this match. And it did occur to me when looking this up, I thought, what is a Zook? <laughs> Never actually stopped to think what a Zook is. And apparently it's a form of French Caribbean music pioneered by the French Antillian band Cassave in the early 1980s, characterised by a fast tempo, a percussion-driven rhythm and a loud horn section. So I don't know how a team can be plural zooks like the zooks if if zook is one thing you know it's like it's like a band name the the zooks yeah, it's like being the heavy metals or the yeah you know no, it's, 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 it strikes me as like a, an indie three piece that did well in the early 2000s that i went to see 12 times yeah or maybe maybe like early 90s even they, they had a double bass definitely yes. the zooks 
yeah, the Zooks had a double bass and, you know, maybe like a trumpet or something. Anyway, uh, they made 206 and they had the Jamaica Talawars chasing and it occurred to me I also don't know what a Talawar is. Uh, Talawar is apparently Jamaican patois and it means strong or powerful. So you've got the, 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 the St Lucia Musics versus the Jamaican Strongs basically in, in this match. And we're looking for two greats of the game one of them is Chris Gale with his thousand sixes in T20 cricket. He opened the batting, hit two of those sixes and then got caught. And there was a, a, a mention in Richard's clue as well about a player getting out just after hitting a six over his head, over Richard's head in the crowd. Uh, and that is what happened with Gale. Hits a six, gets out next ball. Out comes Kumar Sankakara to replace him. Lashes three boundaries, gets run out. He's made 18 off eight. So neither of them have made many runs. Gale made 13 off six. But seeing them play was a big deal for Richard. Chris Gale's strike rate was 216.6, Sangakara 225, which does add up to 441.66. Which means we would round it up to 442 rather than going to 441, mm-hmm. but that's okay. At this point, I'm willing to acknowledge. Richard said, no, no, Richard said you would round up. He says, you like, would as round in up. You and, you and Adam, on the final word, ah, you yes, would round yes, up. Yes. Whereas Wiston wouldn't, yes. and I got into this on Saturday no. night, uh, again, uh, predictably. I was at the Wiston <laughs> house party launch at Lawrence's place, and uh, as you would anticipate, I, I spent some of the evening uh, exp- uh, having this conversation with one of the, the, the Wiston staff about why Chef Thompson's bowling average should be <laughs> 28.01. I should also say, Jeff, I'm not sure if you've seen your, in your inbox that we've got an offer in at the moment to interview Chris Gale for a corporate thing he's doing over here next week. And the press release includes the line that Chris Gale, I haven't got it in front of me, but something like Chris Gale is the most popular cricketer of all time or something like yes, that. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah, yes, maybe and- maybe we should take him. I think I'll be in Dubai by the time the window opens, but maybe we should try and get him on the Zoom call and, you know, ask a few hard-hitting questions. Ask him if he's ever reflected upon the, the Mel McLaughlin um, saga or anything like that just make life uncomfortable for him get a few up around his grill <laughs> or maybe i can't be bothered well, and maybe that's more effort than it's worth yeah yeah i mean look he didn't didn't play the short ball too well towards the end but i think it falls in the more trouble than it's worth i think the uh the likelihood of getting reflection um out of out of that individual is pretty low yeah I would feel. We've got our next number. It is from Elliot Diamond. Speaking of reflections, uh, it is 5.37. I guessed that that was the bowling figures that Adam Dale took in a match at some point in time that I can't remember. Elliot says, unfortunately, Adam Dale was not my favourite player growing up. And I like to think that Adam like might be listening and that Elliot's worried about hurting his feelings. He's like, I'm really sorry, Adam Dale but you were not my favourite player. Although Elliot says, I do remember him in the coloured clothing a bit before my time. This 5.37 relates to the career ODI stats, but not so much bowling figures. Yeah, so well, just to say that Adam Dar was a pretty unlucky player. Um, he, he bowled really well for Australia in 98, 99, that, that one-day triangular series that Warney led Australia in and got picked for the 99 World Cup and started in the team and, and kind of slipped back in the pecking order when they brought back Paul Rifle and, and Tom Moody after they lost to Pakistan. They made sort of wholesale changes and, yeah, he found himself on the outer at that point. But in the previous six months or even 12 months, he was one of, if not Australia's most effective seam bowler. He was often bowling... 10 overs off the top, frugal economy rate, was moving the ball around. So, yeah, unlucky not to have a, a World Cup winner's medal. Although in saying that, he probably has one because I, I reckon every player of the squad 
gets uh, gets gonged with that, don't they? It's not just the 11 that play on the day. Mm. David Boone, though, is where I'm going to take this. And I'm quite happy with how I worked this out. I actually don't remember what the hook was, but somehow I was trying to place numbers next to each other. And I thought, hang on a second, what about five centuries and 37 half centuries? And that is what David Clarence Boone made in one day cricket, which is what we are looking for for Elliot. So it's got to be this. Yeah, so firstly, credit to Elliot for doing the number this way. I quite like that. I think we've had that once before uh, in relation to Mizbah recently. I think we had a, a 50s against 100s uh, conversion rate, you call it, don't you? But this is the first time it's been presented in this way for us. And yeah, the keg on legs, what I didn't realise, Jeff, when going back through it, he actually got his one-day international debut a full year, almost a full year, before he made his test debut. A lot of people, myself included, remember how he became a test cricketer. I wrote about this many years ago uh, when doing uh, the PM's 11 speech for Rudd that year about how David Boone in 1984 made a century against the Windies. It was Dennis Lilly's uh, final game for Australia, again, you know, proper game for Australia. And, uh, and yeah, so he kind of came back for that, having made way out of the test team uh, earlier in 1984. Boone makes 100, he's a test player the next week. What I didn't realise was he was already sort of thrust into the international limelight right in the middle of a a hotly contested final series in the January of that year. So uh, Australia were playing West Indies in a a best of three finals and the Windies were up 1-0 and David Boone gets given the chance to bat at number six. He did okay as well on Dubu, making uh, 39 from 71 balls at number three behind. Kepler Vessels and Alan Border, who we were talking about earlier. Um, Kim Hughes, the captain, top scored with 65. As usual, uh, it was Joel Garner. He knocked over both AB and Kepler, bowled them both uh, in the first 10 overs. And Jeff Lawson looked like he was going to give uh, Australia an opportunity, taking two wickets of his own right up top. But it wasn't to be. Uh, Joel Garner takes five for 31. Australia only had eight for 212 to defend and it was Gus Logie and Jeff Dujon who got them there comfortably with five overs to spare. So it actually took 11 months for David Boone to get a second one-day international, also against the West Indies, also against the MCG. And I suppose this was a, a function of the Windies being part of the World Series Cup pretty much every year through the mid to late 80s. In hindsight, I mean, that's a pretty unusual thing because these series weren't played... At the same time, you'd play a few one-dayers and you'd splice in a few test matches and a few more one-dayers and then a couple of test matches. So it meant that the Windies pretty much spent every summer in Australia, often only playing limited overs cricket. I mean, you think about how congested the schedules are now. Many of those West Indian players were also playing county cricket all winter. So, you know, they were spending... So much time away from home. Anyway, I digress. Back to Booney. In that uh, second one day against the Windies, he, he made his first of 37 half centuries that Elliot's referring to. I assume Elliot's referring to. Then from 85 86, he has a brilliant run. He makes a, his first century, the first of five, at Jaipur against India in September 86. By this stage, he's opening the batting. Has a brilliant World Cup in 1987. Uh, makes 87 against New Zealand, 62 against India, 92 against Zimbabwe, 65 against Pakistan in that thrilling semi-final and then 75 against England in the final. He was player of the World Cup final, which I think sometimes gets a bit lost, Jeff. Like when we think of Booney, we think of this sort of solid test player grinding it out, standing at short leg for three days at a time, you know, soaking that's up it. the short bowling, all that. Yeah, that that's it. We think of him primarily as, you know, standing there in the in the filthy whites, not so much as a one-day player. But, yeah, he was, you know, player of the final 
uh, in a World Cup in, in 1987. And he was a mainstay after that, as we know. He, he, made a, uh, he made an even 100 to start the 1992 World Cup against New Zealand and then an even 100 to finish that tournament as well. His tournament was bookended with 100 exactly, one against New Zealand and, and one against the West Indies at the MCG when they were already eliminated from the competition. He didn't quite make the, the next World Cup in, in 96. He never actually made it to three figures again, but he did when referring to bowling figures. We had Elliot at the start there saying it wasn't bowling figures. I, I did feel like it would be remiss of me not to mention that he that he claimed a wicket against Australia A in the final of that series at the G in early 95. It was Phil Emery. He bowled him, uh, which, which Phil Emery uh, spoke about in an interview a couple of years ago when talking about his slightly unusual international career but for Boone all up 181 one day internationals 5,964 runs at 37 5 tonnes 37.50s Launceston's finest very very good my only fear is that if Adam Dale was a bit before Elliot's time David Boone is even more before his time but there's oh no there's nothing else yes I guess that could be right yeah but there's nothing else that obviously sticks out I mean there's no no nobody averaged 53.7 with the bat you know there's no there are no batting numbers there's no player with 537 boundaries or anything like that so you know I, I think that's good enough it's good enough as an answer uh, Gavin Robertson averaged 53.7 with the ball in his one day international career but uh, <laughs> I saw his, I saw his one day debut his one day debut was against England in a game that Booney was playing in actually um it, he, he got brought up to play in the Australian team uh, graduating from Australia right, against England in early 95 and that was the game uh, where Darren Goff sadly broke down mm-hmm. uh, and we had to be carried off the field and England beat Australia comfortably I was sitting at the back of the old Ponsford stand Jeff remember the old Ponsford didn't have a roof on it you were out in mm-hmm. the elements and yeah we, we were there as a family I think my grandparents came that day as well and I'll always remember there was that back in the Toyota banner days, there was a banner hanging up right near us saying the Wario brothers with um, Mark War and Steve War made to look like the Mario brothers. And I think that won the won the money that day from mm. Toyota. Wow, that's some, that's some quality 1990s gear right there. <laughs> um, we've got Dave Diogenes Brown, uh, $4.80 now. Right, this is this is a little complicated. Um, this was a player who was likely to be a contemporary of Ernie Main, who was a cricketer who organised a tour to the USA yes. in 1913 that we spoke about at some length on the show. Uh, Daniel Norcross managed to find somebody whose name eludes me who played four test matches with a higher score of 80, and that was his version of the 480, his interpretation. <laughs> Dave says, a noble attempt but far too interesting I'd suggest looking closer to my home and moving the decimal point. My love for this cricketer extends to Adelaide Oval in the colder months. So I'm pretty sure this is just a a reflex memory, but I think Dave Brown is a Norwood guy. If I'm wrong about this, he'll be very cross. But my vibe is that when we've spoken before, you know, he's a he's a South Australian football fan, but he's a he's a Norwood fellow. Yeah, I, I think that's right. That's where Barat lives as well, by the way, who will be one day the member for Norwood. When Barat joins yep. the South Australian Parliament, which is an absolute lock to happen at some point through his progression to becoming a, a national living treasure in Australia, he will be Labor's <laughs> member for Norwood, I'm sure. <laughs> so what I have found is this. There is a fellow by the name of Richard Townsend who played for Norwood, was a, was a great for Norwood. He wins a flag in 1904 and again in 1907. This is in the uh, Australian rules variety of football in the, the South Australian League. 
So it wins the flag in 1907 and then later that year, at the, at the end of the year when the cricket season starts, travels to the MCG to debut for South Australia in first-class cricket. What a life. Doesn't go so well. Victoria makes 699, Warwick Armstrong style, double ton. Um, <laughs> Oppa. Um, and, and the Vicks win by an innings and Warwick Armstrong does the horse dance while spanking the <laughs> South Australian players, presumably. Now, Richard Townsend gets Jody Hickst. He's not called upon to bowl while Victoria makes 699. So, you know, that really indicates a lack of faith in his abilities. And then he bats at number nine and he makes naught and one as South Australia lose after being forced to follow on. And then that's it for cricket for him for 11 years. He carries on as a footballer. A couple of years later, he's the league's leading goal kicker in 1909. Uh, Carries on up to the war, keeps playing football after the war, captains Norwood into another grand final in his last season. And then in like 1919, I think it is, when he's done with the football, uh, 11 years after he's made his first-class debut, he's suddenly back in the cricket team. Um, And he does get a job. He's allowed to bowl this time. He takes uh, some wickets. Um, He opens the batting a bit. He's not great, uh, you know, in terms of his numbers. Like he makes one century in his career, ends up playing 17 matches, averaging 18 despite opening quite a bit, or maybe because of opening, picks up 37 wickets at an average of 40.5 in his 17 games. So he, he's, he's one of those rarities in that he has a, a, a proper football career and at least a more than a one-off flash-in-the-pan cricket career for South Australia as a first-class cricketer. The only and, – and, and that debut I neglected to mention, that one match that he plays in 1907, he plays with Ernie Main. They're in the same team ah, at the time. good, good, good. So that's, that's the crossover that we're looking for. The only problem I have is that I can't work out how he links to the number and I've gone through yeah. everything I can possibly think of. So the number is 480. Why is he 480? There's nothing I can find in his football numbers, nothing in his cricket numbers, but he is the only top-level South Australian footballer who played with Ernie Main at first-class level. And so it's got to be him. I just don't know why. Well, well sleuthed. Uh, yeah, my first thought was maybe 480 goals for Norwood. But, yeah, I mean, you've obviously checked that. So, um, yes, it feels as though that'll remain a mystery. Dave Brown, please get in touch and let us know uh, how that can be for Richard Townsend. Sounds like a fascinating fella. Um, Mike Dunn, 244 for his revisit. I remind you that we talked about Jamie Dalrymple's 244 from uh, the 2004 county season playing uh, for Middlesex against Surrey. That was the, the game where Tim Murtagh for Surrey uh, made his highest first-class score, 74 not out. So Daniel and I got quite excited about that, but it wasn't to be. Yes, there is a clue from Mike, and we shouldn't be too surprised to uh, see the content of this clue he says, look to the shaky aisles, because Mike, of course, is a very, very passionate New Zealand cricket fan. He is indeed, and uh, and that's what I did. So I went to the shaky aisles and went to uh, cap number 244. Actually, I didn't get there initially. I, I tried a few other bits and bobs. I, I thought, has a New Zealander made 244 before? Only once in all cricket, and that was, well, all professional cricket anyway, and that was Ben Smith, who I'd never heard of before, I must admit, uh, playing for Central Districts against Otago uh, in 2015. Unlikely to be that. Uh, New Zealand have made 244 10 times, but all fairly unremarkable 
affairs. Most of them were in 1990s One Day Internationals. But when the pledge came in, that was just after last year's World Test Championship final. Who made their retirement then? BJ Watling. What cap number did he yes. wear for the Black Caps? 244. Bingo. And what a wonderful era uh, that he played in. I opened the batting initially when he made his test debut, but it wasn't long before he became the full-time stumper when Brendan McCullum handed over the gloves and, yes, played 75 times between... 2009 and, and 2021, a, a fair income test specialist, Jeff, as well. He, he barely played white ball cricket. They really invested in him as their, you know, their, their test wicket keeper. Had the game for the long innings, as we learnt. Um, he had an average of 38 and made eight centuries in 1950s, but some yeah, quite, quite memorable hundreds in there too. He was crucial to the success that they enjoyed under Brendan McCullum and, and Kane Williamson, one of the, the first names, if not the first name, on the team sheet after the skipper. I talk about memorable centuries, perhaps no more than the 124 that he made um, batting with McCullum uh, in their partnership of uh, 367, I think it was, and it was enough to get Brendan McCullum up to a triple century. Remember that they came together with New Zealand 95 for five after India had made 438. I mean, India at that point are probably thinking, well, we're going to get a chance to enforce the follow-on here. Instead, Actually, they, they put on 352, not 367. But they did get New Zealand to, to 680 for eight, which was a, a staggering right. turnaround in that series that New Zealand went on to win 1-0. And it was the start of something. I think it was, um, it was third innings, wasn't it? I, I think New Zealand had been out cheaply in the first as well and, and they were in, in real strife. Oh, yeah. They, they were miles behind the game, as you say. And, and it was the start of something too. He, he did almost exactly the same thing the next year at the same ground against Sri Lanka uh, this time, on that occasion, in the second innings, uh, New Zealand were, were 5 for 159. They were effectively 5 for 24 after conceding a big first innings deficit. And with Williamson, who made 242, uh, down the other end there was BJ Watling, 142, not out from 333 balls in an unbeaten 365-run stand. They win the test, they win the series... And yes, it was almost uh, exactly what happened 12 months earlier at the Basin Reserve as well. He made a century against England at Leeds in, in 2015, the one test they won in that series to square it one all. Uh, a test away from home against Sri Lanka to square a series as well, which we know it's never easy to make bulk runs in Sri Lanka as a visiting batsman against spin, but he was adept at that. That was ahead of a home summer against England uh, in 2019 where he made his highest test score of 205 across 667 minutes in the middle at Mount Monganui. Uh, that's in the longest 50 innings ever played for, for time at the crease. Um, he took 267 catches and completed eight stumpings in what you would call his primary task. And yeah, difficult to think of a, a better player in that position that New Zealand has ever produced. BJ Watling, cap 244. I think that's a fair call as well. I mean, they've they've had uh, some very good keepers, but not ones who necessarily married that up with the bat. And then, you know, McCullum is a great for New Zealand, uh, but did a lot of that work without the wicket keeping responsibilities. So, put it all together, um, and I mean, easily one of the most underrated players, under the radar sort of players, very rarely talked about uh, that that uh, New Zealand have ever had, and they've had plenty of players who don't get talked about as much as they should. It's true. Uh, Shannon Blackmore is next up with his 192. We talked about Steve Smith in Sydney, Kumar Sangakara in Hobart. Shannon said, the date the pledge was made might help you further. Right. Well, Shannon changed this pledge on the 18th of April 
last year. It came up on the show a couple of months ago, I think, initially, and uh, we're coming back to it here. So what was happening in April last year on the 18th? The first thing that came to mind, Adam, was Andrew Sampson letting us know about the first time that the county championship and the Sheffield Shield had been played at the same time, had crossed over in their seasons because the Sheffield Shield final was being played at Allen Border Field on the 18th of April last year. Queensland won by an innings despite making only 369. Uh, At the core of that performance was Manus Labuschagne, who made 192. Batted for about nine hours. He said it felt like the best he'd ever played in terms of just everything but everything working for him, him having the concentration, having the patience, and there was <laughs> a slightly, slightly barbed comment, you might say. Um, they, were, they beat New South Wales. I think it was Nathan Lyon talking after the game where he said, normally when Manus makes 100, he gets a few dropped catches, but, <laughs> you know, this time he didn't. Um, so, so sort of backhanded praise there, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, that is going to be the 192 for Shannon Blackmore, who uh, has historically had an interest with his pledges in Queensland cricket, it must be said. Yeah, very good. That works for me. Thank you, Shannon. Uh, Cameron Allen, 176. Jeff, you talked about Kushal Mendez's 176 against the touring Australians at Candy in 2016, an innings that Mustrade is one of your favourites, Jeff. It comes up quite a bit. We'll be in Sri Lanka in a couple of months' time and we'll get to watch Mendes bat again. Uh, but it was not correct on this occasion. Cameron says, uh, while I clearly remember that incredible innings, so one of the best I've seen and one of the most unexpected, that wasn't it. My number relates to one of the most famous test tours of all time. However, the player the number refers to played a minor role in the tour. Some would say no role at all. I really enjoyed going through this with Cam. It was one of those where we co- probably corresponded five or six times when I was trying to get closer and closer because, I mean, initially I'm thinking, what are the most famous test tours? Well, Bodyline, 32-33. England's 1953-54 tour to the West Indies that's getting a lot more attention now following the book that was released last year by David Woodhouse and, and won the, the MCC Wisdom Book of the Year in the Almanac last week. You know, Ashes 2005, India-Australia 2001. I mean, look, I'm not saying there aren't other great series, but when people say that, they might mean one of those. Then I went the other way and looked at, you know, great 176 innings and whether any of them married up with a series that could be deemed great. And George Headley making 176 against England in 1930. It's a great tour, but for more final word reasons. I mean, no one's really saying that's a great a great tour, England's trip to the, the Windies in, uh, in 1929-30. Spoiler alert, that comes up later in one of my answers to, to finish the show. Likewise, Michael Slater um, to start the Ashes in 94-95. I mean, that had a big influence in the series, but... It wasn't a, you know, no one's saying, no one's going back buying the commemorative DVD of the 94, 95 Ashes without being a family member of someone who played perhaps. Alistair Cook made 176 at Ahmedabad in 2012. Uh, That was a a great series for England, uh, but not a great series overall in terms of the competitive balance between the teams. So I went back to the caps. Now, of all the players that wore 176, none of them quite fit the bill. Uh, Barrett Aaron, uh, Jeff, a, a bowling coach that we've interviewed a few times across the, the press conference table for India. He, he wore that test cap. Yassir Hamid uh, wore it for Pakistan. He's a player you've referred to on Nerd Pledge before. He made twin tons on test debut against Bangladesh, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Yep, that's right. Uh, and yeah, it's one of the one of the highest scoring first test matches all up. Yeah, he comes up in a few of those sort of quirky stats for debuts. Oh, I could see the glint in your eye through the Zoom screen as soon as I mentioned his name. I thought I should throw to you. Tiger Smith, great name, but not much of a career to go with it. Then I landed on Ron Hammonds, and it has to be him. And let me explain why. Now, Hammonds is a really interesting story, full stop. But at the end of his career, he meets the criteria that, that Cam has set out. He made his test debut as a 32-year-old in 1947 after losing much of his career to World War II. He was a prodigy as a young kid. He made his first grade debut for West Torrens back to South Australia at age 15 years and 25 days. Has never been a cricketer, play first-class cricket in South Australia to this day at a younger age. And he remained a young man when making his first-class debut in 1936, Made a century at the first time of asking. He was pretty close to getting his baggy green before the war, but then cricket stopped for the better part of six years and and he went and joined the, the RAAF instead and didn't play any first-class cricket. Three tonnes after the war in 46-47, including one against the MCC, at last got him into the test team. Uh, as an all-rounder, he made a, a dogged 30, batting at number six. It's been reported as a dogged 30, not out in a low-scoring game uh, in his one test that summer in 46-47. The next year against India, he got two test matches. He made 25 in both of them, and his bowling figures were none for 25 in both of them. So bloody consistent, but not match-winning either. So he was left out of the team for a bloke you might have heard of called uh, Neil Harvey. So Neil Harvey comes in to replace yep. Uh, Ron uh, for the final couple of tests against India but they both get on the boat for England in 1948 Harvey as the incumbent Ron Hammonds as the I suppose the understudy at number six the all-rounder he did play 19 matches on the tour and making 582 runs at 32 including a a higher score of 99 at Somerset Um, so goes the story the team were playing cards in the dressing room and they saw that he was getting close to 100 and they raced out to the balcony to sort of will him to the finish line because he was one of the most well-loved and popular members of the touring party he had this great tenor voice he would often sing uh, stories about himself and how unlucky he was to continually miss out on the test team throughout the course of the series and along with um, Doug Ring and Colin McCall they called themselves the ground staff because the three of them just weren't getting an opportunity in any of the test matches but but especially uh, Roy Hammonds who did not play a test as part of the Invincibles team uh, in 1948. He, he came back to Australia and enjoyed success for his uh, home state, South Australia, but never got picked for the test team again. Um, he did, however, sign off with a century against the MCC again uh, in 1950-51 to finish his long career. And when Bill Brown, another invincible, uh, died uh, in 2008, uh, he became Australia's oldest living test cricketer, uh, which he had for, for a couple of years until he passed away himself, aged 94 in 2010. But did wear cap 176, even if it didn't get much of a workout in the England tour of 1948. South Australian all-rounder Ron Hammonds. Well, well, well. It's always a bit awkward when you talk about an invincible dying. Um, something about the, the the literal nature of the interpretation <laughs> sits badly with me. But very well done on figuring that out, uh, that clue. Uh, some would say no role at all. It was, it was tricky. It was one of those ones where I was like, oh, I don't know where to start with that. So I'm very glad that we got there in the end and that we've heard a little bit of the story of Ron. Well done to you, Ron, you 15-year-old prodigy, ancient debutante, confusing individual. Uh, We've got one more number to go on the show today, Adam. It comes from friend of the show, Glenn Finkeld. It is 
$8.81. Barat talked about Len Braun to the MCG <laughs> in 1904. Glenn said he'd anticipated that would be the answer, but it was not the answer. He says the 881 refers to a couple of matches which, to me, are games that I've always considered to be the test equivalents of the smokers versus non-smokers or Eaton versus Harrow. Uh, and if you need an interpretation to that as a first-time listener, that means test matches that don't deserve to be considered test matches. Yeah, and, and so uh, I must admit I was pretty chuffed when I got this because it took me a while. Glenn and I had to go around the houses a bit on this. Where I initially went, I was trying to think about you know test matches that just weren't much chop early on. So I went to South Africa's first two test matches in 1889 where they got two absolute pastings from England who were visiting the rough old start. They were bowled out for 47 and 43 in one of those test matches. And Johnny Briggs took eight for 11. So the same configuration of numbers. So for a moment there, I thought mm. I was onto something, but, but not to be. Match figures of 15 for 28 for Briggs there, by the way. Helpful for the career average. He, he ended with a, 118 wickets with his left arm orthodox at 17.8, if you don't mind. But in terms of test matches that were played concurrently, I thought, well, that has to be back to 1929-30, doesn't it? Where England were playing simultaneously in New Zealand and the West Indies. And I know that pisses Glenn off. And we often celebrate, <laughs> we often celebrate that, that, that series for what happened at Jamaica, where it ended with uh, Wilfred Rhodes playing at age 52, Andy Sandham's 3-2-5, the first triple in test cricket. Even if it was a bit ropey, we... we, we Celebrate what that was. It included that innings of 849 at the end where Sander makes the test triple, a test that lasts nine days. You know, Headley finishes uh, in the fourth innings, making 223. They pull stumps after nine days so England can get on the boat and go home, just as they do uh, nine years later at Durban. But we kind of know that story. What we don't know so much about, Jeff, is what was going on over in New Zealand. Now, this was also pretty interesting for, for other reasons. We, we've rattled off a few greats there, haven't we? Headley and, and Rhodes and, and Sandham and others. At the other side of the ledger, Arthur Gilligan was meant to lead that England team to New Zealand. But at the last minute, he was ineligible. I think he was injured. So he simply gave the captaincy to his uncapped brother, Harold. And this was kind of reflective of the, the team they, they put out on the, on the park. Remember... You know, the, the, the test matches that were being played in the West Indies didn't have test status. They retrospectively were given test status. These were always going to be test matches. These were New Zealand's first ever test matches after they, they won their, their formal status in 1926 after touring England and making a good fist of it. They were given the opportunity to play test cricket. And England, doing the right thing, went out to visit in 29.30 for that. But yeah, so let's go and have a look at Harold Gilligan, should we? He played 11 years for Sussex to that point. And to give some sense of just how modest his record was, in 1923, he set a record for just how shit he was. 70, <laughs> 70 innings, 1,186 runs at 17.7. It remains and always will be the lowest average for a 1,000-run season. And he was now, <laughs> seven years later, the test skipper. 17.7 <laughs> across 70 innings. And the team he had with him there... I mean, he's got oh he's got God. he's got one star in Frank Woolley, the Kent great. Just 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 hold hold that sure, thought for sure. Sure, that that is a hell of a stat. Yeah, I've never even considered 
coming up with a stat like that, like who has the lowest average for a, a high number of runs? Yeah, like you yeah. know who's you know who's who's got the worst record for having made a thousand runs? We've looked at things like which players have who who have a test century have the lowest career average and that kind of thing, you know, which which is interesting in itself. But a thousand runs in a season and your shit. I mean, that's incredible. I think we've done before, we've done highest bowling average for like 400 a wicket. I feel like we've done that kind of yeah. thing. But you're right. This came up in, in, this, uh, in this obituary for poor old Harold, basically to emphasise how shit he was. But he did get to captain <laughs> England on this trip because his brother wasn't right to go. He was crook or something. Oh, now, he, it's like being made a member of the House of Lords or whatever. It's like getting a peerage. Well, you know? Oh, well, you're shit. You're unqualified. You're incompetent. Here, have this reward. This was the time You're for posh. It. As we said a, a few editions ago, anything went in the interwar period. This is the time of, you know, uh, Mandy Mitchell Innes that we, we spoke of. This is only a few years before that. So just coming back to the team. So we had Frank Woolley there who played 55 test matches, but eight of the players were uncapped and no one else apart from Woolley had played more than two test matches. And so that first test match was no walk in the park. They, they, they get there by eight wickets, but... They're hard held. It's it's a, it's a scrappy encounter. They're at Christchurch. Um, New Zealand nearly win it actually on account of the work of uh, Roger Roll another blunt who uh, who top scored with forty seven out of one hundred and twelve the first time around before taking five English wickets. But yeah, not quite enough. Uh, they have to wait until I think it's nineteen fifty six before they beat England for the first time. But they do well enough to draw tests two, three, and four. So England win the series 1-0. But I was still no closer to 881. I was kind of like, fuck, it's, it's almost certainly something to do with this, but I can't quite square it. And I went back to that first test match at Christchurch and went to see whether there was a test match played on the same day in the Caribbean, and there was. England were playing in Barbados. England made 467 and 167 in their draw to start their series, while at Christchurch they made 181 in the first innings and 66 for two in the second innings. Add up those four numbers and what do you get? 881. Go you, good thing. Oh, that is sensational. That is, yeah, you, you can tell, you know, that when you've, when you've really had to work to get to a number, <laughs> that's the kind of number you've really had to, get, had to work to get to. There's n- no way to find that uh, easily or, or quickly. Uh, sensational work. Well done from Glenn and well done from you. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. Uh, and I'm glad we were able to go back and at least, yeah, at least and there'll be more opportunities I think to go back to 2930 in in, uh, in New Zealand because I think it's a test series mm. that warrants our attention remembering it was the first chance New Zealand had to play uh, at that level so yes thanks Glenn for being a, a great supporter of the show in so many ways and one of the many brilliant contributors we have to our discord page it also raises the question uh, where would you rather be out of those tours would you rather be uh, you know in Barbados where it's it's lovely but teams are making you know 650 or whatever it is or would you rather be playing in New Zealand probably a little bit chilly but at least you know they're getting bowled out for 180 odd and <laughs> getting things over relatively I think they quickly. were I think they were three-day test matches as well which helped yeah it helped oh, yeah. but they were timeless in the Indies and, and and three-day affairs in New Zealand I mean test oh cricket test cricket in the 30s seriously Test cricket is is it's fucking bonkers, and when people you know talk about consistency, oh, and, yeah. you know how all of the rules have to be a- applicable at every level and all the rest of it. Nah, you just make shit up. You, you cricket, you just make shit up on the spot. There's the oh, there's the there's the uh, there's the title of the show. I reckon test cricket just make shit up. 
just making shit up. This game, uh, this this match is played on one leg. You have to hop. <laughs> uh, this match is only played in the middle of the night uh, before the invention of lighting. Uh, this match goes for seven days. This match goes for two. Whatever. It's all test cricket. I think that's brought us to the end of our numbers for this week. If you want to play the game, you can. You go to patreon.com slash the final word. You find us there. You sign up. You put in your number as your amount that you want to send to us. We get it. We put it in the spreadsheet and we do it on the show. It's as simple as that. It works beautifully and it means that we are able to make this show and our other show in the middle of the week and our daily shows and our videos and our every other bloody thing that we do. Uh, and the final word machine keeps rolling on. It was so gratifying sitting around the table at the pub uh, with some final nerds uh, last Thursday when they were going through their nerd pledges and the clues that came before them and how we worked it out and other numbers they've got in the pipeline. Mel Shawley's got a great number coming through, Jeff, which you're going to solve because I know the answer um, with a really good clue. <laughs> and Daniel came with me because we've been doing that IPL game and we came for a you know, couple of glasses of wine afterwards kind of thing and uh, Daniel was running through all of his most enjoyable uh, story time moments as a co-host and yeah, we've got a good thing going here. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Join the conversation on Discord. If you do join on Patreon and you can't work out how to do the Discord thing, just send us a message and we'll ping you a link. There's a back entry there which will um, we'll send you the secret code, so to speak. And I should also say that we have a few more revisits we haven't solved yet because, they're well, they're bloody hard. Charlie Ryan, Stuart Akers, I've got your Stuart. Uh, check out for a message in your inbox. I want to know a bit more, though. Uh, Josh Golby, Matt May and Philip Clark. We will try and do those next week on Storytime when I'm in Dubai. Yes, yes. Uh, Dubai, farewell, uh, Vita Sane, uh, and all of those things because that has brought us to the end of this show. Uh, the weekly show will be out oh, Wednesday. It's usually Wednesday, except sometimes it's Tuesday, sometimes it's Thursday. You know, we like to we like to keep things flexy in the final word universe. Uh, this podcast is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. It is edited by Dave Collins. Uh, it's hosted by me, Jeff Lemon, and Adam Collins. He's the other one. And it is listened to, ideally, by you. Uh, if you're still there, glad to have you with us. So thanks to everybody on Patreon who supports the show. Thanks to Woodstock Cricket. Remember, you can get 20% off their bats with TFW20. That's the code. Put it in at woodstockcricket.co.uk. And otherwise, keep on listening, keep on trucking, keep on nerding. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about-